to the Indie Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Michelle Rindells, and I'm with my colleagues Riley Snyder and Megan Messerly. How are you doing, guys? Hey, Michelle. Each week, we discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming up. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. Let's get right into it, guys. Uh, there's been a lot going on this week in terms of healthcare, and we're recording this on a Friday. Uh, we just had some major developments back in Washington related to um, basically the Obamacare repeal effort that has sort of uh, resurrected in the past week or two. Um, Megan, can you give us a quick rundown of what happened today, and then we'll back up into uh, to what we saw Governor Sandoval do yesterday. Yeah, so the big news today was uh, Senator John McCain just a couple hours ago announced that he'll be a no on this latest repeal effort, the Graham-Cassidy-Heller-Johnson measure, shortened Graham-Cassidy. He basically has expressed concerns with the process, you know, saying that there were sort of these bipartisan talks going on, and, and, and now Republicans are trying to push this through before this September 30th deadline. They have these special rules under budget reconciliation, which allows them to get a measure through with fewer votes. And so Republicans have been trying to get some sort of of, you know, something that resembles a repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act through before then. And um, Senator John McCain has expressed concerns, you know, throughout the discussions over the last couple of months um, over the various repeal and replace efforts that, you know, the Senate should return to regular order, what's called regular order. So not using these special rules to get things through, hold hearings, sort of do the whole thing that Republicans say Democrats didn't do when they were getting the Affordable Care Act through, um, but having an open and transparent process. And so, you know, headed into the weekend where we are right now at 1 p.m. on a Friday. You know, things aren't looking great for the measure. Um, Things could obviously change. Um, Senator Rand Paul is the other firm no. Um, Senator Collins is looking like a no. And so it doesn't look it doesn't look great headed into the weekend. Now, Megan, tell us a little bit about what happened yesterday. Yesterday was also a big story that you got first. Uh, you know, Governor Sandoval had had expressed some misgivings about this bill, but he came out really strong yesterday. Tell us, tell us what happened there. He did. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. He put out a, a very strong statement yesterday, um, calling flexibility without or saying flexibility without uh, with reduced funding is a false choice. And what he meant by that was, you know, Republican Senator Dean Heller is one of the sponsors of the bill. He's been a big supporter of. It. Um, and for those people who haven't been following it, essentially what the bill would do is take a lot of the federal funding uh, right now that's being spent on the Affordable Care Act, turn it into a block grant, and divide it up among the states. Uh, one of the concerns is that Nevada would sort of get the short end of the stick because one of the pots of money that would get lumped into this block grant is um, from the funds allocated through Medicaid expansion. Not all states decided to expand Medicaid. Only 31 states in the District of Columbia opted in- into that. But this block grant would be spread among all 50 states. So the argument is that this would be worse for a Medicaid expansion state like Nevada. But Senator Heller is very supportive of this bill, has been touting that it would give Nevada the flexibility it needs to develop its own healthcare system, whether that's, you know, implementing a different version of Medicaid expansion or, or something else. And it was interesting because on, on Tuesday, that was the first time that Governor Sandoval actually took a public position on the Graham-Cassidy bill. You know, we, we've been talking to him, asking his office for weeks. Um, you know, Riley even asked him, and, and the answer has always sort of been, you know, I'm studying it. I want to wait till the final language comes out. And so he'd been pretty quiet on it. And so it wasn't until Tuesday when he signed this letter with a group of nine other 
a bipartisan group of nine other governors um, saying, you know, we don't think this is the right solution. You know, we need to go forward with these bipartisan talks, but, you know, don't don't consider this proposal. That was the first time we really had a sense of where Sandoval stood on this. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal for the governor to come out against a measure that, you know, Dean Heller is, is supporting. If people remember back in June, the two stood next to each other side by side to, you know, condemn the Senate Republicans' original, you know, repeal and replace plan, the Better Care Reconciliation Act. You know, the Heller has said that what the governor thinks matters a lot. You know, he's been looking to see what do the Republican governors think? What does Sandoval think? Um, so it's a big deal that the two are now, you know, sort of falling out of lockstep. And it was interesting because on Tuesday after that letter came out, you know, Sandoval put out a statement kind of, you know, softening the blow to Heller saying, you know, I'm, I know he's working. He's committed to, you know, supporting the health care of all Americans and Nevadans. And, you know, I appreciate the intended flexibility of the bill, but I don't think this is the right choice. And so the Thursday statement that was very, you know, bold and very direct was was a, a turn from from the tone we heard on Tuesday. So let's talk about Heller. I mean, where does this whole, the fallout of this, uh, this bill, presumably maybe dead for the time being, where does this put Heller? Heller, Heller is on, his name is on this bill. And I know, Riley, you've kind of, you know, looked into this too. But what are the implications for Heller going forward in this Senate race? Yeah. So politically, this has been, you know, sort of a back and forth for Dean Heller. As Megan said, he went on stage and held this press conference with Governor Sandoval back in June saying he wouldn't support anything that affects Medicaid expansion states sort of drew somewhat of like a soft line in the sand. And the story and the narrative since then has been how he went from being sort of this soft no on an ACA repeal bill to being uh, just a solid yes. And, you know, you've seen it definitely in like these progressive groups on Twitter who say like, call these senators and Dean Heller's name is like slowly dropped off all of them. People just sort of assume he's always going to back some sort of repeal effort especially as Graham, Cassidy, Heller, Johnson, Santorum, whatever other names are on there have gotten added to it, has become sort of the the, the driving point for this. He's just been, become a solid yes. And a lot of that, you know, I think has to do with politics. As we all know, Dean Heller is up for re-election in 2018. He had uh, Jackie Rosen announced sort of in, at the start of this whole repeal process earlier in the summer. He had a primary challenger in Danny Tarkanian come out and start challenging him throughout this process. So it's been a lot of, I think, reaction from from him. Just on a side note, I talked to Danny Tarkanian, who was sort of not a solid opposition, but was not a fan of the Graham Cassidy bill just because he didn't think it went far enough. He was sort of in the Rand Paul camp where he just wants to, you know, take the whole bill apart. Um, but even he would said, you know, I want to wait until the CBO report comes out and we can see what the, the effects are. Tell me a little bit about Tarkanian. Um, I mean, let's just talk about why do we think Dean Heller did this in the beginning? I mean, is he in a politically tough spot? Did he have to stick with the bill that he signed on to early? I mean, what what is really going on? And and where does what do we know about where Dean Heller really stands? Well, as we know, as 538 said, literally no one reported when Dean Heller signed on to the (laughs) the grant. No one. Riley and I definitely (laughs) did not write a story right after uh, after Dean Heller signed on to the bill. That whole crazy week when the the first version of the Senate skinny repeal bill came out, uh, you know, go back to episode 18 or whatever to listen to us talk about it then. But yeah, you know, it's been sort of a weird line that he's been on. And he's sort of jumped from, as I was saying before, kind of a soft no to a hard yes on this bill. You know, there obviously, there's a week to go before the September 30th deadline ends. And, you know, people could change their mind. It's still unclear whether Susan Collins, the senator from, where is she a senator from? Maine. Maine. 
Man, that's <laughs> awesome. It's a long week. It's it, been a long week. It is a long week. I almost said Alaska, but that's Murkowski. No, Murkowski, the other, the other one. So there's a lot of, like, you know, maybes. There's a lot that can happen in the next week, um, and we'll see what happens. I think Heller is very eager to move on to tax reform. I did, like, a Twitter search, and that's easily, like, what half of his tweets are and what he's trying to push towards is this whole concept of tax reform. It's something I think he's more comfortable with. He has a background in banking. He's on the Senate Finance Committee. He's not really known as a health policy wonk or someone who digs into those details. So I think, you know, I think he was looking forward to moving into that whole area. But then this whole repeal effort sort of resurfaced this week and brought up all those issues again. And Megan, you've you've written about this Graham Cassidy, you know, quite a bit. And, and we're hearing some of these headlines that it's more radical than the previous bills that maybe were more clearly labeled as repeal. I mean, people saw them more as pure. Now, we just know this as Graham Cassidy. I think some of it's semantics. But yeah. what is your um, your take on on whether this is more extreme, maybe, than what we saw in July. Right. So I think the reason why people are saying that, so you have two camps, right? You have the you have the Senator Rand Paul camp who thinks that this doesn't go far enough, right? Because Graham Cassidy does leave in place a lot of the taxes created by the Affordable Care Act. Affordable Care Act. Um, it just instead gives that money over to the states. So, you know, in that sense, you could make the argument, you know, if, if you're on the more conservative side of things, you may say, you know, we just need to get rid of all these taxes altogether, you know, clean slate, just get rid of them. Don't, don't don't send the money to the states um, necessarily, um, but but it does include some provisions like um, it would allow states to um, ask for waivers from the federal government that would allow them to allow insurers to charge higher premiums for people with certain pre-existing conditions. So that's obviously a controversial part of the plan. And then the other part, which, you know, was in some of the previous repeal bills as well, but is obviously going to have a, a big effect on, on states, is the fact that this bill makes major changes to the, you know, it's half century long old Medicaid program, changing that to a per capita cap. And, you know, that was in previous versions of, of the, of you know, repeal and replace bills as well. But this is sort of a significant change in that, you know, it's going to limit the amount of, of federal funds that states get for the Medicaid program over time. If it doesn't grow quickly enough, there's this concern that, you know, with a per capita cap or a block grant that, you know, the, the rate of increases isn't going to keep up with, um, you know, the actual cost of providing health care, whether you use inflation or medical inflation. You know, I've talked to people at the state who have concerns about, you know, the rate at which those will increase and that it just won't be enough money and it'll only get worse over time. Well, you can visit our website and find a lot of detail on these proposals uh, from stories that we've done this week. So so take a look at that. Uh, get yourself familiar with this proposal that, that may... Maybe going away pretty soon. Okay, let's jump to uh, something else that we we all got involved in this week, which was a major change uh, in legislative leadership. We heard that Paul Anderson, Republican uh, Assembly leader, is going to be stepping down. Riley, you want to fill us in a little bit about on about this? Sure. So Paul Anderson has been in the Assembly for three terms, just as a little bit of background. In 2015, he was the majority leader and sort of the de facto leader of Republicans. He took kind of a step back after they lost a bunch of seats and was the minority leader in 2017, but was still sort of a very important voice and, you know, the primary driver behind fundraising and trying to get Republicans elected to the state assembly. And he announced this week that he would be stepping down uh, resigning and taking a position with the governor's office of economic development, the sort of state agency that was created at the beginning of Governor Sandoval's term to sort of 
be the clearinghouse for tax incentives to try and attract new businesses to Nevada. So he'll be taking on that role. And maybe, Megan, you can talk a little bit about what uh, GOED, the Governor's Office of Economic Development's commonly known acronym, their current, maybe in the near future, head Steve Hill will be doing going forward. Yeah. So so like Riley mentioned, if, you know, Rep- Republican leader Paul Anderson is going to be going over to GOED, people might be asking, well, what's going to happen to the current you know, leader of GOED, Executive Director Steve Hill, who has headed the agency, you know, since it was created in 2011, has been a central figure in all of their efforts, all these, you know, big deals that GOED has made since then, um, you know, most recently the, the stadium and Faraday and Tesla and all that. Anyway, so we also learned this week that Steve Hill uh, will be leaving his post at the Governor's Office of Economic Development and going over to the Las Vegas uh, Convention and Visitors Authority, taking on a top role over there. It's, it's our understanding that there's they're going to be splitting uh, sort of the roles. Um, Rossi Rollincotter right now is the head of the LVCVA. Steve Hill's going to take over as president there, um, take on a leadership role, and and obviously you know people sort of may or may not know the LVCVA is you know this huge role, you know, being Las Vegas's tourism arm, you know, promoting us to the world. And so um, this is a really, you know, big opportunity for Steve Hill and also, you know, a really significant opportunity for Paul Anderson as well to go go on and, you know, take on this role at, at GoEd and no longer, you know, he's been on the legislative side sort of creating these tax passages or tax packages um, from the tax side of things, but now being able to go over to GoEd and, you know, carry these out, you know, in the executive branch. Yeah, and uh, for those that that aren't terribly familiar with it, I mean, GoEd's been a really big part, you know, of what Sandoval's been doing. They, they they lead trade missions all the time. They've played the huge decisive role in all these uh, tax abatement packages that have helped uh, land Tesla, land Faraday, although Faraday sort of fell through. No <laughs> um, and uh, and the Raiders Stadium, of course, are the most well known. But you, you go to these meetings and there's uh, tons of abatements that, that are being offered and to data centers and all sorts of uh, businesses as Nevada tries to really diversify its workforce, um, get jobs other than just gaming jobs and get some more advanced manufacturing and all that kind of thing. Let's talk a little bit about the reputation of these guys. I mean, let's talk about what the reaction was, um, you know, to Paul Anderson being being thrown around as a name for GoEd and, and Steve being thrown around as a name for LVCVA. I think they're both pretty well respected, liked. Paul Anderson has sort of mentioned at the end of the session that he was Looking at other opportunities, he had sold his uh, IT firm, Anderson PC, uh, I think a year earlier. So he was looking for new opportunities, but there's a lot of people who like him. He's been very open and accessible to the media, which we all very deeply appreciate. And Steve Hills is in, in a similar role where he's, you know, always willing to talk, always been open, is kind of well-liked, well-respected. He had his own construction company before going into GoEd and has a lot of connections in the Vegas business community. I talked to Clark County Commissioner Larry Steve Brown. Larry Brown. It's Friday, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, such a long week. <laughs> marijuana lounges are now open. Or <laughs> marijuana, yeah, 24 oh, hours. Uh, <laughs> so I talked to the Clark County Commissioner, and he said that you know the, he wasn't really aware of some of the behind-the-scenes goings-on, but just based on his reputation alone, uh, Steve Hill would be an ideal fit for LVCVA. And so I think you know, there's a lot of people that are positive. I think that position still needs to be um, approved. And Steve Hill, if he does move over there, that would happen during the meeting in October. But it sounds like, you know, the, the everything's going his way, at, at least at this point. And we also went uh, yesterday, there was a vote of the Assembly Republicans, they voted in some new leadership. Uh, Riley, if you want to 
explain who the new Assembly Republican caucus leader is. Sure. So Jim Wheeler, uh, Northern Nevada Republican, represents a rural area in Douglas County, is the new Assembly Republican leader. Um, he'll take over basically what Paul Anderson was doing before. Another assemblyman, James Oscarson, who represents an area out in Nye County, is going to lead sort of the fundraising pack that Paul Anderson was doing beforehand. And, you know, Jim Wheeler wasn't too revealing during this press conference. He just said, we're going to target open seats. We're not going to tell you what they are, but you'll figure out during the session. They have a 15-member caucus right now. They're hoping to expand it and win a few of those back. Um, and Jim Wheeler does have a long history in his short time in Nevada uh, political sphere. Michelle, what, what, what else has he done? What, what are some of his accomplishments or, you know, things he's known for? Jim Wheeler is, a, you know, a rural Nevada guy, of course, and, and kind of votes in, in a conservative way. But he's also been supportive of some of these, you know, the Raiders deal and things like that. Well, he sponsored the Pop-Tart gun bill in 2015. Oh. <laughs> you bill. were the gun reporter. I, so. I missed the 2015 session. You did. Well, right. Megan is 14 years old, so she was. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. This, these Republicans really need to keep um, keep their numbers up because they're they're. 15 to 27 in the minority and if they if they drop down uh, by one more seat they will they will be in a place where Democrats could override vetoes so even getting a Republican governor would not be protection for those Republicans so we'll see if if Jim Wheeler can can do a lot to help Republicans win some more seats uh, maybe maybe it'll be easier in the midterm than it was in the 2016 election mm-hmm. okay um Riley, you did bring up the pot lounges, so I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Tell me what what happened this week with the uh, Clark County Commission. So the Clark County Commission said uh, it's illegal to have fun. And no. um, (laughs) So what had happened was, uh, I think last week, State Senator Tick Sagerbloom, he, the marijuana godfather of Nevada, had requested an advisory opinion from the state's legislative council bureau, which is basically the in-house attorney for the state legislature, and they gave him a letter, which he then gave to us and most other media outlets in the state, saying that you know there was no affirmative action the state legislature needed to take to establish marijuana lounges, these Amsterdam-style you know bars or restaurants where you can go and consume marijuana products. Right now, there's nowhere to do that publicly. You're supposed to do it in the privacy of your own home. There's this ongoing question of you know, we're expecting tourists to come and buy marijuana and they have nowhere to consume it legally. Surely they're doing it in their hotel rooms or, or somewhere else, but they're not supposed to be doing that. So it's sort of a, the state is like keeping its eyes closed and just not thinking about this as a problem. So uh, Christian Kiliani, who is a Clark County commissioner and potential governor for potential candidate for governor, uh, requested this be brought up and the county commission talked about it. They took a little, it was an informal vote. It wasn't binding, so this can come back up, but... She was the only one to vote in favor of moving forward, even to take a look at what would implementing marijuana lounges would look like in, in terms of setting regulations, the law. Uh, a lot of the commission was really concerned about the federal impact. They said they don't want the feds and the Department of Justice taking any more of a look at Nevada and our marijuana system than we need to. Um, and I talked to Senator Segerbloom after all this happened, and he had to miss the meeting. He was in meetings, so he just followed along on Twitter, um, as most of us did. And he said, you know, we can either keep our head in the sand or we can start dealing with the problem. And this is the first day we're dealing with the problem, so it's going to take a while. And Tick Sergeant is running for county commission, so if he does get elected in 2018, I'm sure this will come up uh, uh, again. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's been, what, 10, 10 or so months since 
marijuana became legal. And I think everyone's a little bit cautious about moving forward too quickly. They don't want to really be the first in the nation, I don't think, on this on this issue. It's it's kind of scary to be, be going up against a federal government that's been less open to um, marijuana. And we've got all these uh, federal connections with, with the gaming industry. So I think you're seeing some of that uh, kind of hesitation coming up mm-hmm. in these local government levels, yeah. even though, you know, presumably the the state's uh, attorneys say it's it's okay to move forward with this. For the record, Denver did pass an ordinance in 2016. It was a, uh, a voter-driven petition, so they do allow for marijuana lounges, these type of things to happen. I think they just got their first application like a month ago, and it's set to open maybe in early 2018, but... You know, they passed that in 2016, and it just takes a long time to get the regulations and ordinance and all that stuff set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this would really put us out in, in the front, towards the front of this issue. So mm-hmm. a little scary, I think, for people. Let's move on to energy. Riley, you, um, you wrote about Envy Energy uh, and their proposal t- that would have potentially raise some rates. T- tell us about what happened there. Yeah. So again, uh, for everyone who doesn't care about energy issues, skip ahead about two minutes because I'm just going to talk about energy really quickly <laughs> for the next 120 seconds. So um, under state law, Envy Energy has to go before the Public Utilities Commission and propose their rates for the next three years. This is called uh, a general rate case. Then a bunch of interested parties, consumers, everyone can go in, give their input. The commission um, will then approve the rates and, uh, you know, this is just sort of the process of how electric rates are set. So NV Energy in June put forward their application that they had to legally because it was after the three-year period with no proposed rate increases. They would have been the same as they've been since 2008. They had a press release with their CEO bragging about how great it was. They're keeping costs low. Um, however, rooftop solar happened and the legislature passed this bill reinstating favorable rates for rooftop solar customers. And that went to the PUC in terms of the implementation. NV Energy has always had this concern. They brought it up during the session and they brought it up now that implementing this is going to cost them money. So to keep themselves whole, they've proposed a rate increase through an amendment to their general rate case that would raise uh, electric rates for single family residential, which is about half a million people in Nevada, by about 2%. It would do that by raising the basic service charge, which is sort of the flat amount of your power bill, I think about $4 on average. And they did this in, in an amendment. There was no, not a lot of public notice. The only people who really did take notice was the state's uh, Bureau of Consumer Protections, part of the Attorney General's office that, you know, are the people who are paid to read through these hundreds and hundreds of pages of energy filings. And they noticed this and they brought it up and they said, we need another consumer session, uh, which is basically, basically just a public hearing for people to come and complain and say how different rates would affect them specifically. So this week, the PUC sided with the Bureau of Consumer Protection, Envy Energy asked for it to be dismissed, and they said, you know, anytime we bring one of these up means, you know, a, a rate change could happen. Um, we don't necessarily need that. So now there's going to be another consumer session in December, um, and Envy Energy has to do a few procedural things, but there's more attention and more spotlight being paid to this potential increase in power bills. Yeah, and one of the interesting things is that, you know, this trying to fix rooftop solar was very politically popular. It passed very obviously and clearly and by wide margins in the session, but you're starting to see the uh, the difficulty of implementing that and, and making people happy on both sides uh, when you actually implement the, the rooftop solar law that passed. Yeah, and it's hard for politicians too because, you know, a 2% increase in your power bill is not 
a lot of money, but it does add up over time. And, you know, it's the question of do we support a policy that supports a white amount of people or this very small minority? There's only about 29,000 people who have rooftop solar, obviously more coming now that re, uh, favorable rates have been reinstated. But, you know, it's only 30,000 people out of the million who live in Nevada. Um, but, you know, it, it's funny how energy policy sort of reflects politics in general and everything else that we cover. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to take a detour into a topic that I did a story on today, I guess. It's about DACA. And uh, we're seeing, you know, as, as we reported on earlier this month, the Trump administration is rescinding the DACA program uh, that provides deportation relief and work authorization for children brought to the country illegally. They're in the middle of this very tight timeline right now. Um, and really, students need to act within the next month if their DACA is expiring in the next six months. And and so they've got this short window where they need to turn in this application. And what, what we found, uh, me and, and Luce from uh, the Spanish side of, of the Nevada Independent, we were uh, looking into this. And, you know, these, these groups that are trying to help students fill out these forms are having some trouble getting students to come forward and seek help and submit a renewal because there's a lot of uncertainty about what is going to happen with this information uh, that they're submitting. Are, is the federal government going to use this and then send it over to ICE? And is ICE going to come to the address listed on the DACA application and find these students' parents? So there's kind of a lot of fear. Some students don't really know uh, what they want to do with this. Um, experts, including Michael Kagan at, at UNLV's Immigration Clinic, say just go ahead, um, fill this out if you're eligible. You can get two years worth of work authorization ready to go. Um, and and you, the government already has your information, so you don't have anything new to lose. So we're going to have to see over the next week what happens to um, DACA, whether whether a lot of students take advantage of this opportunity that the administration's giving for, for people to get another two years um, of authorization. And uh, the other thing we'll be looking at, I'm sure, is um, what happens in Congress. So with health care potentially moving <laughs> to the wayside, um, maybe we'll see some action on, on one of these. There's basically four routes uh, that are out there that Congress can take to try to to do something about DACA. Of course, right now, it's just a presidential executive order that can be created and rescinded by a president. Um, so Congress really needs to do something uh, to, to make this last. Another thing that we discussed this week that happened related to our what's going on in D.C. was the National Monuments. Yeah, so on Monday, we found out the Washington Post actually published an article on Sunday night. They got a leaked copy of this draft report that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke had sent to the president last month. The president had issued this executive order asking the Interior Department to conduct a review of the nation's national monuments. Two of Nevada's national monuments, Gold Butte and Basin and Range, were included as part of that review. Um, And so we didn't know when this draft report was submitted to the president last month what the Interior Secretary had recommended be done. So this was the first time we sort of had a sense of what, you know, what is being suggested to the president and the possible changes that could come. Obviously, it's up to the president to decide, you know, which way to go on on all these monuments. But the report um, that the Washington Post posted online did show that that, um, the secretary suggested some changes to Gold Butte, a reduction in the boundary, and, and sort of talked about this conversation with the Virgin Valley Water District. And there had been some uh, negotiations over the boundaries and, and how to 
how they should overlap, you know, with with the, what the water district, um, you know, needs access to and oversees compared to what's, you know, part of this national monument. So, you know, we have to wait and see sort of what comes out of this report. Um, Basin and Range was not you know, mentioned in the report. So obviously the president, you know, still has the discretion to make any changes or amendments to that that he wants, but the interior secretary did not spell out anything particularly pertaining to it. Now, this has been a big cause for a lot of, you know, environmental and conservation groups. What was there? Three million comments submitted. Mm -hmm. um, most of them were were opposed mm -hmm. to changing boundaries of exactly. these these monuments. Can you kind of characterize um, what the reaction was to this leaked report? Was there um, a lot of outrage? Are people, are people okay? Do they feel like it's going to be just a modest change? I mean, as you might expect, people aren't happy. You know, they, they believe they were, the monuments were designated, you know, for a reason. So obviously they, you know, want them to remain the way they are. Um, you know, we'll have to wait and see exactly, you know, what's changed. I think that's sort of what this all comes down to is it's a wait and see until we really know what the response is. And as you might expect, you know, environmental groups who are, you know, interested in protecting the monuments, um, you know, weren't too happy. The Democratic uh, delegation also, you know, sent out press releases and weren't very happy. One person who was happy was Republican Senator Dean Heller, um, you know, who supported the review of the monuments, you know, has said that we want to make sure that people have access to them. And so he put out a statement, you know, basically, you know, applauding the work that was being done to, to examine the monuments. Dean got one win this week and that was it. So, <laughs> poor guy. Okay. Um, the other thing that happened on Monday, now that happened Sunday, Monday. That was Sunday, Monday. Is that uh, we got uh, some more clarity on the Secretary of State's race. Basically, as we've discussed Previously, uh, in last week's podcast, uh, Democratic Assemblyman Nelson Araujo was in interested in in this position. But last time we we talked with our great listeners, there was the possibility that Pat Spearman, Senator Pat Spearman, would also be in this race, and there would be a spirited Democratic primary. Uh, what we found, uh, Nelson Araujo announced on Monday that he was officially jumping into the race, and shortly after that, Senator Pat Spearman announced that she was going to withdraw from consideration, throw her support behind Nelson, avoid the messy primary. And and Senator Spearman, of course, is a pastor, um, uses a lot of biblical allusions whenever possible. And she told me that uh, this was like the parable of Solomon when, when Solomon has a baby in front of him and two women are fighting over it. And uh, and, and he asked the women who, who <laughs> should the baby live or be cut in half. And uh, Pat Spearman said, I want the baby to live. So she doesn't want to split the Democratic Party in two over a vicious primary over the Secretary of State's position. Uh, so it looks like it's probably going to be Nelson. We'll see if anyone else jumps in. But at least among the established Democratic elected, it's going to be Nelson going up against uh, Republican incumbent Secretary of State Barbara Sagavsky. So uh, we'll be watching how that shapes up and whether Nelson, who's, you know, a young guy, will will kind of excite kind of maybe some younger voters, get some more Democratic participation in what is usually kind of a slow year for Democrats. So uh, we'll see how, how that all shapes up. Michelle, just out of curiosity, when Senator Spearman gave you this metaphor, did she say if she's the baby or is she one of the <laughs> women, is she King Solomon? I'm there was there was not about. a whole lot of clarity on the, the metaphor. The Secretary of State think, uh... is the baby. Like, I don't know how this is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'm sticking with the Democratic Party's the baby, and uh, and we're not going to split the baby. So, um, okay, guys, uh, anything else happening this week? Actually, you know, we're going into the weekend. 
you guys have turned in some stories already. What do readers have to look forward? Yeah, so um, our colleague Jackie Valley, who's not here with us today, um, we've been working together on a story about the federally qualified health centers, which play a very important role in the sort of state, the state's uh, healthcare safety net, but aren't necessarily, you know, well known to everyone. So we did a story looking at the funding cliff that they're facing, you know, all all, the, all these proposals really are coming up against the same September 30th deadline. And the federally qualified health centers are, are one of those who stand to lose some funding if, if um, Congress does not reauthorize their funding before that deadline. So we talked to quite a few different federally qualified health centers, um, you know, the, the federal government as well. Well, they get a sense of what's going on. Um, so if people uh, want to take a look at what's what's going on with that, that'll be on the website on Sunday morning for you. All right. And Riley's got something else going on this uh, this weekend for Sunday. Yes, this weekend I'm doing a story on lust, which, as everyone knows, stands for <laughs> leaky underground storage tanks. Uh, very clear, you know, appropriate acronym. <laughs> Um, the basically just refers to uh, gas stations and where they store gasoline. They're in underground storage tanks, and sometimes they leak. Hence, lost leaking underground storage tanks. There's uh, a concern that the Trump's budget cuts the EPA's budget by about a third, and included in that is about uh, a cut in half the funding for leaky underground storage tank, uh, both prevention and cleanup efforts. Um, the state has spent somewhere around like $212 million cleaning up these tanks since uh, 1989. They have currently have like a backlog of 200 of these sites to go through, and they're all over the place from North Las Vegas to Henderson. None in Southwest Las Vegas for some reason. I think we've uh, improved storage. We've all dodged a bullet. Yeah, we've all dodged a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> we all live in the Southwest. And there's some like in Elko and like these even – ghost towns. Um, so they're all over the place. So it's just sort of a look into that program, how it works. It's something that's quite literally out of sight and out of mind because we don't really think about, you know, underground tanks, but sometimes they do leak. Gasoline is not good when it's mixed with water, and especially when you drink it. Groundwater is pretty important here in Nevada. So I uh, look forward to that on Sunday and a map of where they all are so you can see how close you live to a, a lust. <laughs> All right. And for me, uh, we're going to get a, an assessment of Secretary of State candidate Nelson Araujo's uh, policy positions uh, in our ongoing feature called On the Record. So we're committed to when a candidate announces, looking back at their legislative record and their votes and, and what they've actually accomplished uh, during their time in office, if they've been in office. Uh, so be on the lookout for uh, a rundown of, of uh, Democratic Secretary of State candidate Nelson Araujo. Did you ask him the same Solomon metaphor question? <laughs> Would you have let the baby live? No, I need to. Important <laughs> to get him on the record on that. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. So if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at com. And please check out our site if you haven't already, thenevadaindependent.com. And please rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play for those of us with Androids. As always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Oh, guys, more enthusiasm. <laughs> well, I'm Michelle Rendells. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Indie Matters.